Now, tonight we're going to study, as you've seen uh, in the list of topics, about prophets and psychics. And what I would like to do is go back to right before the times of Christ, actually about 400 years before the coming of Christ. The last prophet of the Old Testament was Malachi. Malachi wrote approximately 425 years before Jesus Christ. And after Malachi passed, Israel entered a period of her history which is known as the intertestamental period. It was a very dark period. It was a period in which there was no prophetic voice. It was a period during which the Jewish people were in great turmoil. Many false writings appeared during this time. In fact, you've probably heard the word apocrypha, uh, books that were attributed to Abraham, to Enoch, to Moses, etc., but they were really uh, forgeries. They were falsifications. People that just wrote the name of these heroes in the Old Testament to make people think that they were written by these great heroes of Hebrew history. It was a period when the children of Israel more and more fell away from the truth as it's found in the Old Testament, or as it was found in the Old Testament in those days. So I think it's very important that we realize that when John the Baptist arises to fulfill his mission, he does so after Israel has been in great turmoil, they have been without a prophet for over 400 years, Errors have come into Judaism, like the idea of the immortality of the soul, among other things, and so it was necessary for them to experience a revival and a reformation in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Now, tonight what we want to do is study the mission and the message of John the Baptist. We're going to discover something very interesting in our study tonight. We're going to see that as John the Baptist prepared the way for the first coming of Jesus, God has raised up in the world a prophet which has been called to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. It stands to reason that if God felt that it was necessary to raise up a prophet to prepare the world for the first coming of Jesus, that God would raise up a prophet to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. So, first of all, let's study about John the Baptist. And those of you who are Seventh-day Adventists, you're going to find some amazing similarities. I'm going to start seeing your heads nod like this. You're going to say, wow, that's amazing. You know, when I prepared for this presentation, I was amazed myself because I had never really seen the parallel between John the Baptist and the end-time prophet that God was going to raise up in the world. Now, some of these texts that you have on your list, we are not going to read. I'm just going to refer to them. Uh, because, basically, uh, the text sometimes only mentions one very small characteristic that I want to underline, and it doesn't justify reading the whole text just for that one point. But that's the reason why we give you the list of Bible texts. And that's the reason why we give you a copy of the lecture at the end of the meeting, so that you can go home, and you can go through this list of Bible verses, you can compare it with what you have in the material that is handed out at the end, and you can uh, catch 
and an even clearer and more complete picture of what we studied than even sitting through the lecture here. Now the first point that I would like to emphasize, besides the idea that much apostasy had entered Israel, besides the idea that there were a lot of apocryphal books and false prophets that uh, came into the world before Jesus came, before John the Baptist was raised up by God, another point which I would like to emphasize is that the Bible tells us that John the Baptist did not perform any signs. He did no miracles, he did no wonders. Now that's important because today many people think that in order for a prophet to be a prophet, he has to perform great signs and wonders and miracles. Not so. John the Baptist did not perform a single miracle or a single sign. Let's notice that as it's found in the Gospel of John chapter 10, John chapter 10 and verses 41 and 42. John chapter 10 and verses 41 and 42. It says here in John chapter 10, verse 41, Then many came to him and said, John performed no what? No sign. But all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. So John the Baptist was a prophet, but he did not perform any supernatural sign. Another important characteristic that we notice about John the Baptist is that John the Baptist did not write any book that is included in the Bible. Interestingly enough, and let me say that the Lord Jesus once said that John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets. In fact, let's notice that in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets. Here it says the following, Assuredly I say to you, among those who are born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. And then uh, the Bible author Matthew says, But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And the reason why he says that is because John the Baptist was not able to experience the ministry of Jesus Christ because he was in prison. But the, but the least in the kingdom saw the miracles of Jesus and heard the words of Jesus. And so John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets, but at the same time, the person who saw the whole ministry of Jesus and heard the teachings of Jesus was greater than he. So I want you to notice that John the Baptist, even though according to Jesus he was the greatest of all the prophets, he never wrote a book that is included as part of the canon of Holy Scripture. Another interesting characteristic which we notice about John the Baptist is that John the Baptist felt very uncomfortable when people called him a prophet. Notice what it says in the Gospel of John chapter 1, John chapter 1, and let's read verses 19 through 24. John chapter 1 and verses 19 through 24. He felt very uncomfortable. He did not want to be called a prophet. We're going to notice a few texts, very interesting texts in a few moments. It says in verse 19, now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. 
Then they said to him, Who are you? That we may give you an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then he quotes scripture. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So John says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. And I'm not the prophet to come. Now this is kind of strange. Because Jesus said that he was Elijah. Have you noticed? Let's turn to the Bible and read that. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14. The Lord Jesus says, And if you are willing, speaking about John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is what? He is Elijah who is to come. By the way, do you know which designation John the Baptist liked to call himself by? He liked to call himself first the voice of one crying in the wilderness, as we read. But there's another name that John the Baptist had and which he enjoyed using. Notice Matthew chapter 11 and verses 9 through 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verses 9 through 11. And by the way, Jesus is here speaking, and he's going to say who John the Baptist is, what his name is, what his function is. It says in verse 9, Jesus asking the multitudes, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Let me ask you, was John the Baptist merely a prophet? No, he was more than a prophet, according to this. Now, notice what it continues saying. Verse 10, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger. Don't forget that word because it's very important. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. That is to prepare the way for the Messiah who will prepare your way before you. So what did he prefer to be called? The messenger of the Lord. And he also wanted to be called a voice crying in the wilderness, according to Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3. And we've noticed that he was more than a prophet. His function was far greater than the function of one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, why did John not want himself to be called a prophet? I think one of the reasons is because there were many false prophets roaming around those days, and the designation prophet had a bad reputation. A second reason is because, according to what we read, the role of John the Baptist was far greater than the role of an ordinary prophet, because his role was to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. No other prophet could claim that. But there was a third reason why John the Baptist did not want to be called a prophet, and that is because John the Baptist was a very humble man. Notice John chapter 1 and verse 27. And you know this verse, you've read it before. John chapter 1 and verse 27. It says, It is he who coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to what? I am not worthy to lose. In other words, John the Baptist for three reasons did not want to be designated a prophet even though Jesus said he was the greatest of the prophets. Number one, because his work involved more than the work of a prophet. 
because he was preparing the way for the first coming of Jesus, preparing a people for the first coming of Jesus. Secondly, because he was a very humble man. And third, because there were many prophets who brought uh, reproach upon the name prophet. And so he said, you can call me a voice crying in the wilderness, you can call me the messenger of the Lord. Do you know that John the Baptist arose in harmony with two specific prophecies of the Old Testament that predicted that he was going to arise? In other words, there were specific Bible prophecies in the Old Testament that predicted that John the Baptist was going to arise as a prophet before the first coming of Jesus. You say, where are those prophecies? The first is in the book of Isaiah. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 1 to 3. Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 1 through 3. This is the first prophecy that John the Baptist uses, and he says, look, my mission has been predicted by prophecy. My mission has been foretold by what the prophets have told before. They spoke about me arising in this day. So he arises in harmony with Bible prophecy. Notice Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then notice verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then it says, every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. Have you realized that these are the very words that John the Baptist quoted to authenticate his mission and his message? He's saying, this prophecy spoke about me. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 to 3, he quotes this passage. And in Luke chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5, he quotes verse uh, 3, 4, where it says, Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. So I want you to notice that John the Baptist arises in harmony with Bible prophecy. But there's another prophecy that John the Baptist fulfills specifically from the Old Testament. And that's found in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Malachi 3 and verse 1. See, he doesn't rise simply uh, all of a sudden by surprise. He rises in harmony with prophecy. Notice Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my, what? Messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who is the me there? Jesus. That's right. And now notice. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is the very passage that Jesus quoted to say that John the Baptist had arisen in harmony with Bible prophecy. And if you continue reading there in Malachi chapter uh, 3 and verse 2 and 3, it says that when the messenger would come and he would prepare the way for the Messiah, Messiah would suddenly come to his temple and he would purify and cleanse the temple. 
Well, let me ask you, did the Lord Jesus cleanse and purify the temple after John fulfilled his mission? In harmony with the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Notice he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry and at the end. Let's just read the cleansing of the temple at the end of his ministry. Matthew chapter 21 and verses 12 through 16. Matthew chapter 21 and verses 12 through 16. Here we find, we've read the verses 12 and 13 in another context before, but let's uh, read them again. It says in verse 12, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Did he cleanse the temple, yes or no? Did he suddenly come to his temple? He most certainly did. Verse 13, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then who is left in the temple? All of the money changers, all of the leaders have been cast out of the temple, and who is left? It says in verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But who are the enemies? It says in verse 15, but the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? So in harmony with Malachi 3 verse 1, it says that God would send his messenger who would prepare the way. And then the Messiah would come suddenly to his temple and verses 2 and 3 of Malachi 3 say that he would then cleanse his temple. Now another important aspect of the ministry of John the Baptist is that John the Baptist not only arose in harmony with two specific prophecies that talked about his mission, but he also arose at a time when there was a great religious awakening. And the reason why there was a great religious awakening is because there was a time prophecy in the Old Testament known as the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Now the Jews knew that this prophecy of the 70 weeks had begun in the year 457 B.C. They knew also that at the end of the 70 weeks, the anointed one, the Messiah, would come. And they could count. They knew that if there were going to be 483 years from the time that this prophecy began until the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who would be baptized would come, they knew that the time was near. So in other words, John the Baptist arose at a time when a time prophecy, a crucial time prophecy from the book of Daniel was to be fulfilled. Now don't forget all of these details because we're going to come back to them. There's a striking similarity between this and what happens later on in history. It is simply amazing. It's mind-boggling. Even for you people who have been Adventists all your lives. You know, I hadn't seen this until I started preparing for this series. It's simply amazing. Now probably some of you already know where I'm going. How many of you think you know where I'm going? Oh yeah, okay. Some of you are very smart. And some of you are smart, but you just haven't caught on yet. Now, notice, was John the Baptist liked? Did the religious leaders like him? No. To whom was John the Baptist sent? He was sent to, uh, on a ministry to the Romans. Oh, no, I guess not. Oh, to the Greeks. No either, huh? 
to the Babylonians. No, their, their city had been destroyed long before that. To whom was John the Baptist sent? He was sent on a mission to prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. Let me ask you, how did the leadership of Israel look upon this prophetic gift of John the Baptist? Notice what it says in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And let's read verses 29 and 30. And by the way, the problem wasn't with the people. The problem was with the leaders. They didn't like being called generation of vipers. I can't say I blamed them. The only problem is they were that. Now notice Luke chapter 7 and verses 29 and 30. And by the way, prophets don't mince words. Prophets tell the truth. They tell it like it is. They ruffle feathers because they cramp your lifestyle. See, the reason why people don't like prophets is because prophets tell them truths that put the finger in the sword. And so people say, no, give me a prophet that speaks smooth things, nice things. Jesus says, hey, a prophet who speaks nice things and smooth things, you can be sure he's a false prophet. Because in the Old Testament, the false prophets were the ones that spoke beautiful and nice things. Now notice Luke chapter 7 and verses 29 and 30. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. The people, you know, they actually liked John the Baptist. But eventually they followed their leaders. Notice the attitude of the leaders in verse 30. But the Pharisees and lawyers, that's the scribes, rejected the counsel of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Notice once again that the primary enemies of the prophet were the leader, uh, of the prophet, in this case John, were the leaders. Just like in the Old Testament, the kings of Israel, always that the prophets brought them messages, or I should say almost always, almost a hundred percent of the time when the prophets brought them a message, they opposed the message and they threw the uh, prophet into jail, or they stoned the prophet, or they killed him in some other way. So I want you to notice that John the Baptist was disliked, particularly by the leaders of the nation that he came to reach. Incidentally, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 18, he was accused by the leaders of having the devil by speak, as speaking by the power of the devil, interestingly enough. They said, you have a demon. That's what your prophetic ministry and mission and message is all about. In other words, they attributed his prophetic gift to Satan and his evil angels. Now, another interesting aspect about John the Baptist, if you read John chapter 1 and verse 6, you'll notice that the Bible says that he was sent of God. In other words, he's simply a messenger of God. It's interesting. John the Baptist did not belong to any of the Jewish denominations of his day. He was not a Pharisee, he was not a Sadducee, he was not a Herodian, he was not a scribe, he did not study in the schools of his day. He was not a leader in Israel, he was not a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and yet he was sent with a message to Israel, to the leadership of Israel primarily. In other words, he wasn't a leader, he was sent by God, and by the way, he was never ordained by human hands. He was called, and he was ordained, and he was sent by God. He did not occupy any position of importance and leadership, whether it be pastoral or administrative or whatever, in Israel. Now, another important aspect about John the Baptist is that John the Baptist did not bring any new truths to light. 
No new doctrines. No new teachings. John the Baptist was called to restore the truth that had been buried in error. John the Baptist always quoted, as I mentioned, to authenticate his ministry, the prophets of the Old Testament. In other words, John the Baptist did not bring to, to light any new revolutionary truth. He was not an innovator. His source of authority was the Old Testament scriptures, and he used the Old Testament scriptures to point to Jesus. For example, in John 1 verse 29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Was that some revolutionary uh, revelation that people had never heard before? Of course not. They could identify with the sacrifice of the Lamb in the Old Testament sanctuary which took away sin. In other words, John the Baptist did not bring any new doctrines, any new teachings. What he did was try and restore, rebuild, and reestablish the truth that had been buried and forgotten by Israel. Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 11 on this point. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 11. Very interesting. Every time that Elijah appears, he's never an innovator. He's never creating new doctrines, new teachings. He's always restoring. Notice chapter 17 and verse 11 of Matthew. It says there the following. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 11. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming first, and he will what? He will restore all things. Are you following me? And incidentally, I can go one step further. Do you know that all of the Old Testament prophets, their only function was to restore the truths of, that Moses wrote, which the people had forgotten? The prophets of the Old Testament do not bring any new truth that is not in the writings of Moses. What they're doing is they're telling the people, you've gone astray from Moses, you've gone astray from the scriptures that you have, come back to the Lord. You can read it time and again in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, no new truths. All they do is call the people back to the truth which has been already revealed. In other words, they are restorers. And by the way, this is in perfect harmony with the Elijah of the Old Testament. Do you know that the Elijah of the Old Testament... Uh, he basically, what did he do? He restored the worship of Israel, didn't he? He restored the commandments of God, didn't he? He restored the sacrifice of the Lamb, didn't he? You remember in 1 Kings chapter 18 that he took the stones of the altar of God that had been torn down, the stones were all over the place, he took 12, 12 stones and he rebuilt the altar. In other words, he's re-establishing the worship of Israel. That's why he puts 12 stones there, incidentally. And he also says to Ahab, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have troubled Israel because you have forgotten the commandments of God and you're worshiping Baal. So all he's doing is restoring true worship. He's restoring the commandments of God. He's restoring the sacrifice of the Lamb, which takes away the sin of the world. Even Elijah is not bringing any new truth. He's restoring the old truth. And incidentally, if Israel had not fallen into apostasy, there would have been no need for Elijah. If Israel had not been in apostasy, there would have been no need for John the Baptist. God raises the prophets because God's people have forgotten the truth, and they've apostatized from God. So God raises up a prophet to help them. Now let's talk a little bit about the message 
of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had several elements in his message that I'm going to go through quickly. In Matthew 3 and verse 3, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me ask you, what do you repent of? Sin. And what is sin? Transgression of the law. Did John the Baptist exalt the law of God? He most certainly did. Do you know that he was willing to die to uphold the law of God? You say, how's that? He told the king in his face, in the presence of Herodias, he said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And Herodias says, oh yeah? I'll have your head someday. And she did. Because he upheld the seventh commandment of the law of God. In other words, John the Baptist exalted the law of God. He called people to repent of sin. But do you know what else he exalted? He also exalted the lamb as the solution for sin. He pointed people to Jesus. I, I kind of remember talking about this last night. Notice what it says in John chapter 1 and verse 15. John the Baptist is always pointing to Jesus. John chapter 1 and verse 15. It says, John bore witness of him. What did John do? He bore witness of whom? Of Jesus. And cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Notice also verse uh, 29. Verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice also verse 34. It says there, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist not only told people, you're sinners, you're breaking God's law, you need to repent, but he pointed to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He always testifies about Jesus. But he did more. He reproved the leaders of Israel. In fact, he says, don't you think to say in your hearts, we are children of Abraham? Listen, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones if he wants to. In other words, he had a very stinging, direct message for the leaders that they should not consider that because they belonged to the true church, that that was going to guarantee them salvation. Another element of the message of John the Baptist is that he called people to produce fruit. We've talked about this when we dealt with the return of Elijah last Sabbath morning. He in, in, encouraged people to produce fruit. Now let me ask you, what is fruit? Not only does he say repent so that you can be forgiven by the Lamb, but he says also, once you've been forgiven, you need to make produce fruit which flows from repentance. Now what is the fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, temperance, etc. You know the passage in Galatians chapter 5. Jesus says, he who abides in me and I in him bears what? Much fruit. Does the life change? Did John the Baptist call for a change in the life? Did he call for a sanctified life? He most certainly did. And we read also Romans chapter 6 and verse 22 where the Apostle Paul says that we have been delivered from sin. We have become slaves of God and we have as our fruit sanctification. That is holiness. And at the end, everlasting life. So he called people to produce fruit to prepare for the coming of whom? To prepare for the coming of Messiah. Because when Messiah comes, he's not going to say, by their words ye shall know them. They're not going to be judged by their words. They're not going to be judged by appearances. They're going to be judged by their fruits or by their works. You say, now wait a minute, you're saved by faith. Yes, but you're judged by works according to the Bible. You say, now how's that? How can that be? 
Well, it's very simple. You see, your works show if your faith is real. A workless faith isn't really faith. Are you following what I'm saying? True faith produces works. If, you, if your life doesn't change, you know, I kind of snicker when I, when I hear these born-again Christian politicians who swear the air blue. They say, we need to moralize America. And here they're swearing. By their fruits ye shall know them, the Bible says. Isn't that right? Christians should talk different. They should go to different places. They should watch different things. They should listen to different things than the world does. They should practice different kinds, a different kind of entertainment, different kind of social activities, because the fruit of the life shows whether we have really given our lives to the Lord. And this is in preparation for the coming of Jesus. By the way, John the Baptist also preached about the coming judgment, didn't he? He says his winnowing fan, this is in Matthew 3 and verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will separate the wheat from the what? From the chaff. And he will take the wheat, which represents the righteous, and he will put them in his barn and the wicked he will what? He will cast into the everlasting fire. Now let me say something. Do you know that John the Baptist, and we're going to study a little bit more about this in a moment, do you know that John the Baptist did not have all of the light. He did not really understand the relationship between the first and the second coming of Jesus. He actually thought that the first coming was going to be the time when God would take the wicked and he would throw them into the fire. That's why he says it in Matthew chapter 3. But by the teachings of Jesus, we know that the casting of the wicked into the fire was not going to take place until which coming of Jesus? Until the second coming of Jesus. That shows that prophets sometimes have limited knowledge. And it's necessary for people to study or for another prophet to come and add information to what the previous prophet had, had given so that we can have a complete picture. Now, if John the Baptist speaks about the judgment, can you speak about the judgment without speaking about the law? Let's suppose you go before a court of law. Oh, it's a court of law, isn't it? You go before a court of law. You're accused of some crime. Is that crime compared with the civil code? Is that why you're there? You've transgressed the civil code? There was no civil code to break. There would be any judgment. And so when he says that his winnowing fan is in his hand and he's going to judge, it must mean that he's going to judge by what? By God's holy law. So how is it that God's law has been done away with if God is going to use his law for the judgment? You're speechless. Because the truth is the truth. Now, what was the ultimate purpose of John the Baptist teaching all of these things? The ultimate purpose was to prepare a people for the coming of Jesus. Notice what it says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. Here, it's telling us about the mission of John the Baptist. And it says in verse 17, He will also go before him, that is John will go before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And what is the ultimate purpose? To make 
ready a people prepared for what? Prepared for the Lord. So what is the purpose of all of his preaching? Repent. Accept the Lamb of God. Produce fruit in your life. There's a coming judgment. What is the purpose of all of that? He's telling the people, Messiah is coming, and when he comes, you have to be what? Ready. Do you suppose that when Messiah comes the second time, we need a similar message and we need to be ready? Yes or no? Absolutely. Now, notice also what it says in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 10. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 10. On this same point of making a people ready. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 10. It says here, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will what? Prepare your way before you. So the purpose is to prepare a people for the coming of Jesus. That's the whole purpose of his preaching, is so that the people will receive the message, they'll receive forgiveness, they will have a transformation in their lives so that when Jesus comes, he will find a people who will say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Praise the Lord for Elijah. If it wasn't for Elijah, if it wasn't for John the Baptist, nobody would be ready for the coming of Jesus. Now, another interesting detail about John the Baptist is he was kind of an eccentric fellow. Kind of is a mild term. If you looked at his dress, camel's hair. If you looked at his diet, wild locusts and honey. By the way, the locusts are fruit, not grasshoppers. There's a locust tree. And he lives where? In the desert. And he preaches with authority, no sound system. In the desert, he preaches with power, an abrasive message, an intrusive message. And the multitudes come out. I can imagine the religious leaders saying, listen, I don't know whether you can trust this guy. He might be establishing a cult. Boy, if you looked at John the Baptist, you would imagine that that was a cult, wouldn't you? I mean, he's preaching a message which, which appears to be drawing the multitudes away from the accepted religions. But lo and behold, the Bible says that he was the prophet of God. I mentioned that John the Baptist grew in his understanding. You remember that John the Baptist, when Jesus came, he was so excited. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't want to baptize Jesus because he realized that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But you know what? In Matthew chapter 11 and verses 1 to 3, we find that John the Baptist soon begins to wonder whether what he had preached was true or not. Are prophets perfect? Do prophets commit mistakes, personal mistakes? Do they grow in their understanding? Yes. So what do you do when a prophet says something at the very beginning of his ministry that doesn't seem to jive fully and completely? But then later, that prophet makes clear 
and corrects that partial view that he had, what do you do? You take the first view and you say, see, he was wrong. Huh? What do you do? You look at the developed concept that that prophet brought forth. Are you following me? And so John the Baptist, you know, he wasn't clear. He says, are you the one that we're expecting? He sends his disciples, are you the one we're expecting or should we expect another? And you know that Jesus didn't answer. He said to the disciples of John, just wait a minute, watch. They stayed there all day. And Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. He healed the lepers. He taught. The people who were crippled jumped up and walked. And then Jesus says to the disciples of John, now you go tell John what you've seen. And I can imagine that John the Baptist was tremendously comforted when he heard the news about what Jesus was doing. Because John the Baptist knew that when Jesus began his ministry, he predicted that this was going to be his mission. So John the Baptist grew in his understanding of Scripture. I want to go to one final point about John the Baptist before we go to the final fulfillment of all of this. Do you know that John the Baptist had the testimony of Jesus? You say, now come on. Where does the Bible say such a thing? Go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I want to read verses 7 and 8. John chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Listen to this. Listen to the analogy which is used to speak about John the Baptist. It says in verse 7, This man came for a witness. Do you know that that word witness there is the same Greek word, only, only here it is a noun, whereas in other places it is a verb. To testify is a verb, but here it is a witness. The word marturos means a witness. The word marturia means one who gives witness. The act of giving witness. Now it says here in verse 7, this man came for a witness to bear testimony, you could translate it. To bear testimony of who? Of the light that all through him might believe. And now notice, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness to that light. Now that's interesting. Was John the Baptist that light? No, but was he raised up by God to bear witness to that light? Yes, and interestingly enough, if you go with me to John chapter 5 and verses 35 and 36, you'll discover something very interesting. John chapter 5 and verses 35 and 36. You see, John was a light, but he wasn't that light. Notice the words of Jesus in John chapter 5 and verse 35. Here he's speaking about John the Baptist. He says, he was the burning and shining lamp. What was John the Baptist? Jesus is the light, but John the Baptist was what? A lamp. In other words, he was a lesser light that was raised up to lead to what? To the greater light. Notice verse 35. He was the burning and shining lamp. and You were not willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. 
For the works which the Father has given me to finish, that the very works that I do bear witness to me that the Father has sent me. So John the Baptist is sent to give testimony or witness to whom? To Jesus. He is the lamp, the small light that leads to the great light. Now, I want to ask you a question. Didn't the Jews already have the Old Testament? To whom do the, does the Old Testament give witness? Let's read right there in John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 39. John 5, 39. Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, You search the Scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me or give witness of me. Testimony of me. So did they have the scriptures which gave testimony to Jesus? So here is the crucial question. If they had the scriptures that gave testimony to Jesus, why would they need a lesser light, John the Baptist, to lead them to the scriptures? Are you with me? Wouldn't it be enough for God to say, just, you know, study the scriptures, study the Bible? Why raise up a lesser light to bring alive the Bible, the Old Testament, so that when Messiah comes, the people are waiting for him. I can imagine the Jewish leaders saying, oh, we only go by the Bible. We go by sola scriptura, the Bible alone. No such thing as contemporary prophets. Well, the interesting thing is, folks, as you read here, it says that John was raised to give testimony to Jesus, but the scriptures of the Old Testament already gave testimony to Jesus. So what was the role of John the Baptist? His role was to raise up, to awaken the interest of the people in the study of what? In the study of the written scriptures. Are you understanding me or not? In other words, he was not given as a new light to supersede the light of the Old Testament, to add truths that were not already in the Old Testament. He was raised up to awaken interest in the study of the Old Testament so that the Jews would say, oh, we hadn't seen the Messiah in the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament would light up because John the Baptist, the lamp, the lesser light, had brought the greater light into focus in their mind. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So John the Baptist was the lesser light that led to the greater light. Notice John chapter 5 and verses 31 to 33. John 5, 31 to 33. It says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has bore witness to the truth. What did John do? He bore witness to whom? To the truth. And then if you continue reading, let's go there to, to John chapter 5 and continue reading what Jesus then says to these Jewish leaders. He speaks about John being the, the little lamp that is supposed to awaken their interest in the study of Scripture. You know, and they had the Scriptures. They claim to follow the Scriptures. They claim to understand the Scriptures. But really they're violating every principle of the Scriptures. So God raises up John to bring them back to the Scriptures. Notice what it says in John chapter 5. And let's start at verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in, my, in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Then he says, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Let me ask you, what if the Jews had seen Jesus in the writings of Moses? Would there have been any need of a John the Baptist? Absolutely not. The reason why God raised up John the Baptist is because the Jewish nation had forgotten the Old Testament scriptures. They had forgotten Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures, and so it was necessary to bring their attention back to the great prophecies of the Old Testament, which pointed to the Messiah. And interestingly enough, Acts 13 verse 27 says that the Jews, as a result of not understanding the scriptures, they fulfilled the scriptures by crucifying Jesus. Have mercy. When you don't understand scripture, you will fulfill scripture in the negative sense of the term. Now, let me ask you, do you suppose that at the end of time, God is also going to raise the gift of prophecy to prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus? Do you think that the same problem exists today in the Christian world which existed in the days of Jesus? Does everybody claim to know the Bible? We're Bible Christians. We do what the Bible says. But of course we go to church on Sunday. We've got the Bible on our side. But we believe that the dead aren't dead. Have mercy. There are so many divergent views in the Christian world today as in the days of Jesus. Many different sects and denominations. If a prophet should arise, what would be the function of that prophet? To bring new truth. To give us some hidden truths that nobody ever knew before. Oh, he's going to bring marvelous revelations. No. If God raised up a prophet, the purpose of raising up the prophet would be to exalt what? The written scriptures. So that the church would what? Would return once again to the scriptures and obey them. Now, some people say, well, pastor, but uh, isn't, doesn't the Bible say that the law and the prophets were until John? No more prophets after John. Luke 16, verse 16. Well, if that's the case, then we've got to throw out the book of Revelation from our Bible. Because if the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist, and when John the Baptist died, no more prophets, then John the, 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 the apostle of Jesus, who wrote the book of Revelation, you know, he died at the end of the first century. So he couldn't be a true prophet because the prophets were until John. The fact is that the Apostle Paul, in all of the lists of the gifts of the Spirit, mentions the gift of prophecy. The fact is that the book of Acts constantly mentions prophets that existed in the early church. So in other words, the gift of prophecy is to exist as one of the gifts of the Spirit till the very end of time. And by the way, do you know that the Bible says that there are going to be false prophets at the end? that are going to perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the very elect? Why would the devil raise false prophets if there wasn't a true one? Why would you counterfeit a $7 bill that doesn't exist? You see, the fact that at the end there are going to be false prophets must mean that there are also going to be what? True prophets. 
Now go with me quickly to the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 17, and we'll have to go through this very quick. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, it's speaking about the end-time church, the remnant church. I want you to notice the characteristics. Revelation 12, 17, we don't have time to study the whole chapter, but there's a sequence of events in the chapter. And this verse is the last verse in the sequence. It's talking about the end time. And so it says in verse 17, and the dragon, what does the dragon represent? Satan was enraged with the woman. What does the woman represent? The church. And he went to make war with the rest or with the remnant of her seed. Now what does that remnant or what does that offspring have? Two characteristics. They keep the commandments of God. Nine of them. Ah, thank you very much. They keep the Ten Commandments of God. And what else do they have? They have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What did John have? The testimony of Jesus. What will the end time church have? The testimony of Jesus. What is that testimony of Jesus? Well, let's go to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. Here it, it explains what the testimony of Jesus is. It says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. This is an angel that appeared before him. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. What do the brothers of John have? The testimony of Jesus. And then it says, Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is the testimony of Jesus? The spirit of prophecy. Now what does that mean, the spirit? Why is it called the spirit of prophecy? For the simple reason that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives the gift of prophecy. It's the spirit of prophecy because the Holy Spirit gives prophecy. And it's the testimony of Jesus because the prophet gives witness or testimony to Jesus. So it's the testimony of Jesus because it testifies of Jesus and it is also the spirit of prophecy because prophecy is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So is the end time church going to have the gift of prophecy in its midst? Yes, it is. By the way, the devil knows it, so Revelation 16, 13 says that he's going to raise up the false prophet. And do you know what the purpose of the false prophet is? It's to counteract the mission of the true prophet. Remember the days of Elijah, there were the false prophets of Baal? And there was a true prophet, Elijah? Well, the same thing at the end time. God will raise up a true prophet in his church, and there will be a false prophet who will try to counteract the teachings, teach the opposite, teach things about Bible prophecy that are not in the Bible, if possible, to deceive whom? To deceive the very elect. Well, let me tell you, that gift of prophecy has appeared in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I'm going to be direct clear. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm going to make the comparison now between the mission of John the Baptist and the mission of a prophet that God has raised in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Her name is Ellen White. Let me make the parallels. Did God raise up the gift of prophecy through Ellen White after a long period of apostasy in the Christian church? The 1260 years, which is known as the Dark Ages, where most of God's truth was lost. And at the very end of that period, God raised up Ellen White to bring people back to what had been lost during this period. 
Ellen White never performed a sign or a wonder or a miracle. Ellen White never wrote a book which is included in the Bible. Her writings are extra canonical. That means that they're not part of the Bible. The Seventh-day Adventist Church does not believe that the writings of Ellen White are part of the Bible or should even be included in the Bible. Because the purpose of the writings of Ellen White is not to bring new truth, not to bring new knowledge, but to restore what the Christian world has lost. It's to awaken interest and attention in the Holy Bible. Do you know that Ellen White did not like the designation prophet? Allow me to read you a very interesting statement. Ellen White doesn't realize where, you know, where this is coming from, but it's very interesting that she says, this is in her book, The Upward Look, page 160, she says, I have had no claims to make, only that I am instructed that I am the Lord's messenger. What does she say? I am what? The Lord's messenger. Early in my work, I was asked several times, are you a prophet? She responds, I have ever responded, I am the Lord's messenger. I know that many have called me a prophet, but I have made no claim to this title. My Savior has declared me to be his messenger. By the way, do you know that the work of Ellen White was far more than the work of a common ordinary prophet? Because she was called for a period of 70 years to give us knowledge and writings coming back to the Bible to prepare a people for the coming of Jesus Christ. By the way, do you know that the mission and message of Ellen White is authenticated by Bible prophecy? We just read that there are prophecies in Revelation that say that the end time church will have the testimony of Jesus. So just like there were prophecies that pointed to John, there are prophecies which pointed also to the ministry of Ellen White within the remnant church. Ellen White arose at the conclusion of another great prophecy, time prophecy of Daniel. John the Baptist at the end of the 70 weeks. Ellen White at the end of the prophecy of the 2300 days. And as John the Baptist announced that the Messiah would come to cleanse the earthly temple, Ellen White was raised up in harmony with the prophecy of the 2300 days to preach unto 2300 days and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Of course, that's all coincidence. Ellen White was never a leader in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She was never a pastor. She was never ordained by the hands of men. She was the messenger of God to the remnant church, just like John the Baptist was a messenger to Israel. She never claimed a position of leadership because her call came directly from God and her mission involved far more than occupying a position within the church. Ellen White was not raised up by God to present new truths. You've noticed in this seminar, I've read from Ellen White once. That was a statement in the presentation on religion and politics. That's the only time I've read anything. Everything else has come directly from the Bible. The teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church can be sustained from Scripture alone. We don't need Ellen White to show us what the truth for these last days is. But then the Jews didn't need uh, John the Baptist either to show them the truth. If they had accepted Moses and the prophets, they would have accepted the message of John. 
They wouldn't have even needed John if the Christian world had followed the Bible. And if the Seventh-day Adventist Church had followed the Bible, we would have no need for Ellen G. White. If you read the writings of Ellen White, you will discover some very interesting things. Her mission was the same as the mission of John the Baptist, his message. She exalts the law of God. She exalts Jesus Christ. Just read Desire of Ages if you don't believe it. Fabulous presentation about Jesus. Incomparable biography of our Lord. It'll bring tears to your eyes when you come to the chapters, for example, that speak about Gethsemane and Calvary. It will literally shake you up when you read those chapters. How she exalts Jesus. In her writings, she also speaks about the necessity of bearing fruit to the glory of God. Sanctification, the change in the life. Much of her writings deal with the idea that the judgment began in 1844. And that the judgment will soon conclude. And Jesus will separate the wheat from the tares. And he will come to take his people, which he has already predetermined before in the judgment, home with him to heaven. And after the millennium, the wicked will be destroyed with fire. Her message is the same message as the one that was proclaimed by John the Baptist. Many people accuse Ellen White of being the founder of a cult. That's not surprising. Don't get your information from the internet. Don't get it from there. Don't ever get your information about people from their enemies. No matter what group it is. Because the enemies twist reality beyond the truth. So if you want to know the truth, if you want to know about Ellen White, read her writings. I'm not saying that tonight you have to accept that Ellen White was a true prophet. What I'm saying is that you have to have the intellectual honesty to say, I'm going to go and I'm going to check it out. Is that fair? I would hope so. Ellen White wasn't perfect. I could tell you stories of how she grew in her knowledge. At the end of her life, she had developed many ideas which were partial and incomplete at the beginning of her ministry. Some people say, look at what she said about the shut door at the beginning of her ministry. She was wrong there. But we don't look at what she wrote later on, which adjusted certain things in her mind and clarified things in her mind. So that then, a little bit later on in her ministry, she had the issue of the shut door clear in her mind, and she puts it clear in her writings. You can't expect more from Ellen White than you expected from John the Baptist, who also grew in his knowledge. Ellen White was not perfect. She had her moments of doubt. She had her moments where her faith wavered. Ellen White was raised to lead us to the Bible. I find it interesting that she says in the book Selected Messages, volume 3, page 30, she says, little heed is given to the Bible. And the Lord has given a lesser light, speaking about her writings, to lead men and women to the greater light. Interesting. Where is she getting that terminology from? I suppose she's inventing it. No. She's fulfilling the same role as whom? The same role as John the Baptist. Notice what else she says. This is in Selected Messages, volume 3, page 29. She says, the Lord desires you to study your Bibles. He has not given any additional light to take the place of his word, which if eaten and digested is as the lifeblood of the soul. So why did God give the writings of Ellen White? Not to give new doctrines, new information, new knowledge, but to bring people back to what? Back to the Bible. 
back to Holy Scripture so that we follow what God says in His Holy Word. Allow me just to read one statement in closing. If I have it here, I'm not sure that I brought it with me. Yes, here it is. Listen, Ellen White herself said that, that if uh, people had obeyed the Bible, God would have never raised her up. See, Adventists are different than Mormons. See, Mormons believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet, but when they can't prove something from the Bible, they'll come out with uh, a doctrine and the covenants and the pearl of great price and the Book of Mormon, and they'll quote it. They'll say, see, it says here. You say, but where is it in the Bible? Oh, well, God has raised up a prophet, and he's given us new truth and new light. We'll never do that with Ellen White because all of our beliefs are based on Scripture. Now, notice what she says. This is the last quotation, volume 5 of the Testament. The written testimonies, now notice this, the written testimonies, speaking of her writings, are not to give new light, but to impress vividly upon the heart the truths of inspiration already revealed. Man's duty to God and to his fellow man has been distinctly specified in God's word, yet but few of you are obedient to the light given. Additional truth is not brought out that is in her writings. But God has, through the testimonies, simplified the great truths already given and in his own chosen way brought them before the people to awaken and impress the mind with them that all may be left without excuse. Might be surprising to you to know the real Seventh-day Adventist concept of Ellen White. We don't take Ellen White to establish doctrine. But she does awaken many ideas in our minds that lead us to the Bible to see things that perhaps we have not seen before. To explore avenues of investigation that perhaps were not clear in our minds before. It's a wonderful blessing that God has given to his remnant church. To prepare a people for the coming of Jesus. May the Lord Deliver anyone from being like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were critical of John the Baptist and attributed his information and his ministry to the work of Satan. Like some people are doing even within the Adventist church with the gift of prophecy. The greatest enemies of the gift of prophecy are inside the church. Inside the Seventh-day Adventist church. God, deliver us from such a thing. Let us respect and love the gift that God has given this church. Let us read it and compare it with the Bible and put our lives in harmony with it so that when Jesus comes, we can say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of prophecy that you have given to your church. You raised up Ellen White at exactly the moment that you said you would. I know that there's lots of people here tonight, Lord, they don't know anything about Ellen White. I don't expect them to accept any of this that I've said tonight without reflection, without study. But I ask, Lord, that you will give them a willing heart, an open mind, and the sincerity to go and check it out, read it for themselves, so that their lives can be profoundly blessed by this marvelous gift that you have given to your church. We ask that you will give us the power to put our lives in harmony with your will because we want to be ready when Jesus comes. We thank you, Lord, for hearing and answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.